0: Welcome to episode 4 of the Big Picture Podcast, in which we discuss John Frankenheimer's 1966 film Seconds, a paranoia-infused thriller that is part science fiction and part body horror, that initially flopped to the box office, but has since become a classic of post-McCarthy-era American cinema. We're joined in this episode by Jez Connolly, co-author of a new book about the film published by Liverpool University Press, author as part of their Constellation series. Make sure to listen all the way to the end of the podcast for a chance to win a signed copy of the book. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: All right, so yeah, welcome, Jess, and thank you for making the time to, to speak with us today.
2: Yeah,
0: absolute pleasure to, to be joining you today.
1: Of course, looking at uh, the book that you published, our, my first question is, why seconds? What drew you to this particular Frankenheimer film?
2: Uh, well, probably a couple of main reasons. The first one is a really, really selfish reason, which is that I wanted to be the first person to write a monograph about seconds. So it's about beating beating everybody else to the punch, really, which is a bit a bit cynical. But the other thing is really that that this isn't the first monograph uh, about a film that I've written. It's the, actually the third. And if I think back, uh, going back a few years, if I had to be pinned down and name the films that I thought I could probably write forty thousand words about, <clears throat> the three that I would have been able to do, I, I thought, would uh, would have been the three that I have written about. Um, there's probably quite a bit of daylight between those three and the next one, if there ever is a next one, but these three, so Seconds, which is what we're here to talk about today, and the two which are uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, and The Evening Studios' horror anthology Dead of Night, that's the other one. So yeah, it's kind of like a a, um, a trio of obvious candidates, candidates, or usual suspects, if you like.
1: Hmm. Seconds is a, a pretty, I mean it's a part of the Frankenheimer trilogy, the paranoia trilogy. Um, obviously, the most famous, probably being Manchurian Candidate, uh, that I'm sure most most listeners would be most familiar with. Uh, Seconds a little a little less well known, I think. So, would you be able to to give us a kind of a synopsis? of the film itself and its place in the frankenheimer trilogy
2: yeah it's actually it's quite a loose trilogy and um it wasn't actually a consecutive set of three films in between so the three parts are, are the manchurian candidate which was 62 seven days in may which is 1964 and seconds which was 1966 but in between um seven days in may and seconds frankenheimer also made the train um, which is not part mm. of the, this this sequence, so it's not a direct consecutive trio of films that he that he made. But they definitely have linking themes. The first two uh, films, if you if you're aware or, or familiar with them, are very much more kind of grounded in um, sort of geopolitical themes, very kind of actual real world themes um, that run through both of those films quite quite clearly. Seconds is different somewhat from those first two films. It shares quite a bit of, of um, common ground, but it, it does differ in that, for me anyway, uh, it, it's dealing with much more uh, about um, how an individual within a system is affected by that system rather than about the system itself, which I think the first two films are that bit more about. Uh, so that's why I was always drawn to this film seconds in particular over the other two two films it was that bit more kind of personal if you like so yeah. um i'll probably spoil the film now if i go through the, the full details of the of the um, synopsis but I'm, I'm happy to do that if you're okay for me yeah. to do that
1: i mean you know we've spoken about this before in another episode that it's it's kind of inevitable with this kind of thing to to not to include some spoilers it's hard not to include spoilers so i think i think that's okay right gabriel
0: absolutely fine yeah absolutely fine go for it spoil away
2: <laughs> but essentially it's it's um it, it's centered around um, a man who is about 50 years of age he's a commuter so he work, he's a banker in new york and he commutes back each day to Skarsdale, which is a part of the commuter belt in new york state Uh, to a kind of a leafy locale. Um, It's quite apparent from the outset that he's just part of the rat race. We see him, um, after the opening credits, we see him um, heading through Grand Central Station towards his commuter train to get back home. Before he steps on the train, a total stranger slaps a small scrap of paper into the palm of his hand. This guy doesn't get on the train, our main character, um, Arthur Hamilton. It's the character's name, played by the actor John Randolph. He gets on the train, gets, takes his seat, unfolds a scrap of paper, and it has an address on it. 34 Lafayette Street. That's all the information that's on the piece of paper. Gets home, his wife drives him back home. She thinks he's looking a little bit concerned, a bit worried. He, he brushes it off. And then the next time we see Arthur Hamilton is sitting up in the small hours, waiting for a phone call to happen. Phone rings. He picks it up, and it's a friend of his who he considered to have died some time ago. So he's he's not convinced that it is, it is actually his his friend. He says it's, it's a prank basically, but he his friend convinces him that it is the real person um, because one piece of information that they do share is that in their youth they were they played tennis together, and um, there is a trophy on the mantelpiece in the room that Arthur Hamilton is sitting in. So on the phone, his friend asks him to get up, have a look and lift the felt underneath the trophy, and underneath the felt he can see the inscription Fidelis Eternis, which makes Hamilton think, well, this is the real guy, because nobody else knows about this inscription. So he's convinced about that. He's then told to go along to this address, 34 Lafayette Street, at midday the following day, and um, basically await further instructions, because what lies behind this is a company that will give Arthur Hamilton what he really feels that he wants, which is a second life, a second chance at life, to start afresh. So he goes along, and he eventually arrives at the headquarters of the company. Um, Is kind of coerced into signing um, some documents that tie him in to paying this company $30,000 so that they can go through with the procedure. The procedure involves some major, major surgical alteration. Um, so uh, Arthur Hamilton, played by uh, John Randolph, is tr- transformed into Rock Hudson, who was 40 at the time of the film's making, so a kind of 10-year age gap between the actors. Um, Which actually is one of the things that a lot of audiences at the time struggled to swallow because there's quite a major physical difference between the two actors. But nevertheless, once you've kind of got your head around that, we see the Rock Hudson version of of this character be provided with their second life. So he he receives some counselling, he's told what to expect of his life, what he wants from it. um, And he wants to be an artist living on the west coast of the States. And he's provided with the most amazing Malibu beach house in which he can set up and be an artist basically. He's just basically dropped into this new life and allowed to live it. But the problem is once he starts to live it he realises that it's just not giving what he wants. So he he meets a woman um, and this person then starts to help him, her, her character's name is Nora, uh, she, she helps him to develop his new personality and to feel that bit more comfortable in, in his new life. Um, that involves attending a, a fairly wild grape stomping party, and he gets into the, the vat at one point, and his inhibitions are are removed, and he, he starts to feel much more comfortable within the second life. But then, after the grape stomp party, he attends a party at his beach house, which he lets slip a little bit too much information about his first life, which he's really not supposed to, to do, because it's kind of letting the cat out of the bag and only when he does that does he realise that other other guests at the beach at the um, the house party are just like him they're seconds basically they, they are, have received the same treatment as him they've gone through surgery and they're living a new life but of course you're not actually meant to say that you're meant to just live the life and not refer back to your first life which is what he did so he tries to kind of reverse the process he goes back to the company to try to get, if you like, actually a third chance um, mm. to start again, again. Which does not go well for him, if we can say, because that is a major breach of the company's uh, conditions, terms and conditions. And he meets a very sticky end, which I will not say too much more about that, because if you haven't seen the film, um, that sticky end is one of the most um, startling and arresting moments of the film.
1: Yeah. It's a very deeply bleak movie. I mean, it's not to spoil, I don't want to spoil the ending either, but the, uh, I think the summary that you gave very nicely indicates how it's, how this particular film compared to, say, Manchurian Candidate is more focused on the individual. It's a lot more intimate. So you're saying that's kind of what drew you to it? And then you, I mean, 40, you said, you're trying to find a film that you could write, you know, 40,000 words about, could you talk a little bit about um, kind of the process, the writing process of it, and how you how you chose to kind of tackle this particular film? Um, well, to start with, it was an incredibly
2: protracted process. I started writing this in 2016, and it was only published in May this year. Um, there was about an 18-month gap where I did very little uh, to it, uh, and then to bring it back to life again, I actually uh, I, I kind of took on a, a co-writer. So it's all it's the, the book is co-written with Emma Westwood, uh, who also wrote a book on The Fly for the same publisher a couple of years back. Um, which actually, in and of itself, is an interesting process, given the fact that we're talking about a character with a bit of a dual personality. It was quite interesting to kind of for two people to work on the same book. And uh, if you do read the book, it's a, a bit of a a parlour game, if you like, is to try to spot. Which of us wrote which bits? Um, so hopefully it's fairly seamless. But um, but um, so why did I actually? Achieve, well, the process of writing it, uh, I think I wanted to be quite informed by the nature of the film itself. So uh, it's it's quite a um, sort of a fractured experience watching the watching the film. Some of that is in the visuals. Um, the editing is it's, it's quite sort of idiosyncratic lots of use of um, camera rigs that provide a, a, like a skewed sense of reality, a distorted sense of reality. And so I wanted these kind of elements of disturbance and, and kind of choppiness if you like to kind of play into how the book itself reads. So what I, I kind of I can kind only of what I didn't want to do I didn't want it to be a very kind of linear chronological run through, the plot lined well, up I didn't want it to be like a diary of the production process either so the chapters as, as you uh, encountered them are very much informed by the themes that the film throws throws out and in not any particular order if I'm honest with you so so but each each part of the book kind of keeps feeding into the, all, all of the overarching themes that the film kind of provokes I would say so it's yeah. quite a I I sort of wanted it to be a little bit of a challenging read in terms of its structure. Uh, because I think I like to challenge readers a little bit if I'm honest with you. So yeah, that's probably describes the, the, the nature of the book.
1: I think yeah, it's so it seems more analytical, would you say, rather than than kind of a how was this thing made type of account.
2: Yeah, yeah. Very, very much so. I mean it's quite um it's a bit of an autopsy, if I'm honest with you. I kind of, I drag a magnifying glass over the whole thing, and I suppose there's some analogy between how I did this and, and the surgical procedure. I'm kind of dicing it up a little bit and examining the part, the individual parts, and then yeah. maybe trying to reconstitute it a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's a perfect word. To, you said uh, dis- dissect. I think that's a a pretty perfect word for it. Yeah, Get, considering what the what the film's about.
2: Yeah, so that's what i was trying to do. So, so I'm um, I'm always really interested to know what people make of the approach that I've taken to the books that I write, and so I'm, and in, in, with this one I particularly am. Um, so yeah, anyone who gets a chance to read it and would like to feedback, I'm, I'm all ears really because when I was doing it, um, I had no real sense for most of the time that I was working on it whether this was even going to work uh, because it felt like in in a, a, a definitely a, a work that was. In parts, in bits, all the way along, and it only kind of, kind of came together towards the end, so I hope that it kind of works on some level.
1: Um, well, it sounds it sounds like it would be kind of the perfect way to approach the film because it is a very fragmented, in parts, you know, hallucinatory, uh, non-linear film. So it seems like that would be. Oddly, kind of the ideal way to approach the this particular movie.
2: Yeah, probably there'll be quite a few disorientated readers by the end of it. Yeah.
0: Well, I was just gonna, <laughs> I was just, I was just gonna jump in, uh, into the conversation, Jez, and just ask about because you mentioned it before about the, the themes. You know that there's so many themes that come out of this film, and, you know, I watched it recently, and it's. Highly evocative and it's very powerful in lots of different ways in the ways that it's filmed, um, in the ways that you know the camera is used there's a very stifling sense to the entire film the way that sets are used and angles are used to create you know a, th- this overbearing um, feeling of oppression I felt as I was watching it, even when he gets to the beach and he starts the new life. But I guess the the question I have, which came up just after I finished the film, was a vast amount of the population are unhappy in their lives. Now, thinking about when the film came out in 1966, what was the themes that you feel that were coming out of the book and ultimately in the film that were reflecting things that were happening in America at the time?
2: Yeah, I think it it could only have been written book written and the film made in the 60s basically because it was that point that kind of post-war point in time at which society was definitely going through a major shift you know you know youth communities were were, were, were coming through and, and becoming you know self-determining in terms of what they, what they did with their lives and so in 1966 the year before the summer of, of love um, kind of crucial because it's almost at a, at a crossing point culturally um, in sixty six, you have you have very much influences of that kind of um, man in the grey flannel suit, post war breadwinner, um, but coming right up against this shift in society towards you know a much freer uh, society, um, including you know including drug use etc, uh, which crops up once or twice in the in the film. Um, so it's it's this kind of point of clashing, I suppose, cultural clash. Uh, which means it, it could only be made when it was made, really.
0: And it was it was interesting because one of the characters I, I can't remember. I think it's the 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 main the, the main guy of the corporation. You know, the one that owns the corporation or seems to be the boss of the corporation. The older man figure that seems. And he's actually
2: called the old man in the. Crepe. The
0: old man, yeah, and the old man who's got that very soothing voice. You know, is the one that seems to be the the, the trusted character to come in at points when. Uh, you know, the transformation is going to happen or when he's ultimately being blackmailed or after he's been blackmailed and he realizes what situation he's in that this main character basically has to sign this paper to give over, you know, his life and start again. But the, this, this th- that character, I mean, is, is significant in some ways, but when I was thinking about thematically about this whole idea is that he says at one point in the film you know, the whole idea of dreams of youth, you know, the dreams that we have of youth. You know, I felt that this is something universal and that's maybe why this film continues to be so impactful now is because it's dealing with these themes about the idea of the things that we dream about when we're young, the aspirations that we might have when we're young, and then the life that we sometimes lead that can be very, very different. So it's almost like this idea of where could we have gone and where do we end up going?
2: Yeah no, you're absolutely right I I mean I think you know whilst up it's set in in the 60s it's it's definitely of the 60s um everybody turns 50 at some point and I think I think the the experience of the, the male turning 50 to a fair degree is very much the same now as it was back back then you know it's it's just a, a phase of life that that we that we encounter that we experience and so I think yeah that continues to be um many aspects of this that, 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 that new audiences will definitely get from it in the here and now it doesn't have it's not a period piece by any means it's very very uh, resonant still i would say interestingly as you mentioned the old man character is played by will gear in in the film um and he he is remarkably um reminiscent of colonel Sanders so almost he almost exists as a, as a representation of the, of the corporate world if you like Embody, embodying it in some way. And in fact, actually, there is, there is a, a, a scene where, where
0: chicken is discussed at some, at some yeah. length, which is... Um... Yeah, that, would, that, that sort of brought me on to something else about the use of food in the film. I don't know if there's a thematic thing that you discuss in the book, but food is used so often. You know, there's the idea that when he's led through, you know, the meat factory, you know, with the, the hanging cows everywhere, I mean, there seems to be symbolism in that, and then there's the grape scene later on, and then there's the chicken that kind of sits in front of him. I mean, was food something that you went into in the book as, as thematic? Even more meta than that, actually, there's a chapter almost totally dedicated to digestion. Yeah. So mm. um, you're absolutely
2: right about the meatpacking factory. There's almost a slightly laboured metaphor there, but the most laboured metaphor in the film, actually, but it's, it's right there. But what you tend to find is that in both incarnations of the character, we rarely see him actually eating anything. We even see him presented with food, but he refuses it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of sets this, this idea that as part of his of him being uncomfortable in his skin, in, in his first uh, iteration, if you like, um, and subsequently with the second one, um, that he also has problems with um, eating and digestion. Um, all, it's all kind of tied in with him being very kind of bound up and, you know, kind of constricted almost. Mm-hmm. And it's only through the process that he eventually goes through does he start to loosen up a little bit. And that's mm-hmm. actually at that point, you start to see him drinking quite a lot at the house party, for instance. Up until that point, and even when he's gone to Malibu, his manservant is there, he's putting food, food in front of him and he doesn't eat anything.
1: And speaking, you spoke about him being constricted. And that made me think about even earlier, before he goes to the meatpacking plant, Part of the you know his journey toward the company is he goes to the the uh, the dry the dry cleaners right uh, and there's you know there's a guy uh, you know pressing the the clothes and and uh, so that kind of made me thinking of uh, like skin almost like he's mm. as he goes through as he gets closer to the company the the presser is like the skin the surface and then he goes to the meat packing plant and that's like another another descent into the human body almost and then the grape stomping is like the the, the blood or something what well, do you think about the grape
2: skins as well you know through 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 the actions of the the stompers that skin is being you know rendered apart and the juice is being let out and actually um, you see quite a few little snippets in, within a very rapidly edited scene within in within the vat that they're stomping the grapes in where the juice actually splashes onto the camera lens mm. Um, which is quite an interesting kind of slight fourth wall experience. Um, so so yeah, breaking breaking down and breaking apart and letting letting stuff out, if you like, is quite mm-hmm. important. In fact, actually, moisture generally um, you see again in in the Arthur Hamilton stage, the first phase of him, um, you often see him sweating profusely. So again, it's this sense of that there's something trying to burst out of it, but it can't quite manage it. Mm-hmm. And then at the party, when he's Rock Hudson, he's absolutely s- dripping his forehead. And so it's, it's all part of this loosening up experience.
0: Well, this, the, the, the bit with Arthur Hamilton at the beginning, you know, when he's on the train and going all the way back, you know, when that strip of paper is put into his hand, the scrap of paper, and, and we as an audience are a little bit lost. I mean, it starts off with really interesting camera angles and there's, a, there's an element of surveillance, which I think is... is Evident from, from the off, and then he's given the scrap of paper, and then the train sort of pulls away, and he's got that sort of shocked look on, on his face. Now, I've only seen the film once, but I struggle now, even thinking back to it, thinking why was he sweating so much at the beginning? Was there something that he knew? Are we dropped into the story when things have already happened before? I, you know, maybe you can just say a little bit about that because I, I was a bit confused.
2: Um, when he gets the phone call from his friend, his name is Charlie Evans. I should have, I should have mentioned that. He's actually, played by Murray Hamilton, the the, the mm. mayor from Jaws. Mm. Um, it's he says during that phone conversation with Charlie Evans, I can't remember the exact dialogue, but it's clear that this isn't the first phone call that he's had. Mm. So it's the latest in the series, and he you know, he hadn't. I, you can sort of assume that he hadn't really believed. He assumed they were like prank calls, and he hadn't believed the previous calls, and probably put the phone down. But that's when, that's why it's important. Um, through the lifting of the felt on the base of the trophy, to see if a turn, is scratched there. That's all. That's the clincher, really. This has got to be Charlie Evans because only Charlie knew about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the supposition is that mm-hmm. in the film, anyway, he, he's he's been made aware of some information, some details about what this company um, can provide for him. I don't mm. think he's only learning about that... when we see him have that, that phone call in, in the film. So he, right. he must have some kind of an inkling. Um, mm. that, this, that whole sequence of the film... I always think about... So There are so many echoes of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, actually. Mm. The scrap mm. of paper mm. is a little bit like The White Rabbit... and Charlie mm. Evans even more so. Mm. So he almost kind of falls down a rabbit hole. And, and when he arrives at the company he's even given a drink me cup of tea which mm-hmm. drugs him and then he, he has that experience and you know it's like he's always falling down this rabbit hole basically
0: yeah no i i've i've found that fast and also the dream sequence the way that it's done where you know there's the lens the pull out lens and the fisheye lens and it's all distorted and But uh, what I also picked up in that, and I don't know if it's something that you discuss in the book. Now, I don't know if I was reaching with this, but the idea of the corporation, this idea of, you know, mysterious. um, And there's elements of the occult that come in because there's various conversations where people are talking about something pseudo-religious or, you know, occult-like. And also the party with the wine. There's elements to that. But I felt in the dream sequence, there's the checkered floor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. Was there anything that you discussed in the book about things like freemasonry or this un you know this secret society or cabal you know scientology you know is the latest version of that but was there anything that you discussed that in the book or anything that came out of that
2: i think there are, there are bits of that one thing to note is that this, this is a co-written book so my co-writer emma emma westwood um i i think from memory because i don't know her sections of the book verbatim off the top of my head but i'm pretty sure she does start to touch on this sort of thing in some of mm. the parts that she wrote for for, the, for this book. But certainly um, you've got a lot around secret organisations. Mm. What That is exactly what the company is. They uh, they are actually explicit to, to Hamilton, more or less saying, well, how can we possibly advertise ourselves given, given the service that we offer? It's all mm. done by word of mouth. So mm. it's all, you know, a certain person is recommended to use the services of the company. They could never advertise what they
0: do which is also very Freemason-like. You know, when you think about the way that someone recommends someone else and it's all done through that and the secret handshakes. And and it was only literally when I saw that dream sequence of the checkered floorboard because that, when you go into Freemasonry spaces, because there's one in Bristol, interestingly enough, that opened its doors. For, For a long time, no one was able to go into these places, but they started to, you know, friendlify themselves so you'd be able to walk in. But that is something that's very specific and particular, but I don't even, I don't even think to Freemasons, because the Freemasons are only a, the latest of these men's clubs, you know, that has a secrecy around it, but I, I thought it was fascinating and sometimes isn't it interesting with films that you can read films in different ways once you have some sort of connection to something that says okay well that's a symbolic signifier of a lens that you can read a film through. Not entirely, but gives you some insight.
2: Yeah, I, I always think that's a sign of a really great film where you can... and then One person can, can watch a film and get X and Y from it and they watch it a second time and they get Z from it or Z mm-hmm. from it. So, uh, and then another person can get something completely separate, completely different, mm-hmm. which I think that is a second example of that. One other thing that occurs to me while you're saying that is that, of course, what is it's not explicitly said in the film, it's not unreasonable to, to come to the conclusion that the client's for the company are are exclusively male. Mm. Um, I,
1: it's it seems unlikely that there are any females who who use the services of the company. I if I can speaking of looking at scenes from different lenses I was thinking about the the kind of drugged dream sequence as well. And I don't know if again if you touch on this in your book but the the dream sequence actually had me thinking of German expressionism and uh, and a lot of I felt like a lot of elements of the film almost felt like like harkening back to to silent films because there's that dream sequence. And then uh, the organ music by Jerry Goldsmith made me had me thinking of like old silent, silent film, you know, music accompaniment. And then when he wakes up from the dream and he's kind of walking around uh, the corridors of the company, there seems to be like no no sound. Uh, when he's opening doors or you don't hear his footsteps on the floor or it's like eerily quiet. So I was wondering if, if there's kind of like a silent film influence. Uh, I'm sure there is. It's a real
2: hybrid of a film in terms of the influences that it draws upon. <clears throat> I think you're absolutely right to, to pull in German expressionism, but I also say, you know, post-war European cinema generally feeds in, sort of French-Italian cinema feed, feeds into what, what you're seeing. So they were... Frankenheimer was very definitely aiming for a kind of a hybrid sensibility. Um, the critics of the film often cite this as a weakness, in so much as <clears throat> it possibly hasn't got its own identity, which actually is very appropriate for the film if you think about it. But uh, and that it, rather than actually creating art, it's often accused of being arty, which is quite a different thing, really, a bit a bit of a bit of a negative, uh, I, I guess. Um, but, but I think it's just, um, uh, they very definitely endeavoured to pull in a variety of different influences, stretching right back through the history of cinema. You can definitely see the cinematography, the editing, um, sound quality, music, it's all there, basically. Yeah.
1: And even the, the Saul Bass opening credits, which are so beautiful, had me, and other influences, because you, I think maybe the opening credits... Had me thinking about like Vertigo even, which Saul Bass also did right, and then this emph- this opening emphasis on like the eye, and um, I was wondering if you if you could speak about or if you wrote about this the role that Saul Bass played in and then also in the poster design too.
2: Yeah, well, uh, certainly um, the credits are emblematic of the whole film. Um, we see a succession of shots of parts of, the, of a human face, not. Not the character, uh, not the actors that we see in the in the film that follows, but parts of a human face in extreme close up, and then also distorted. I think they use some kind of a like a metallic um, film which they bent and distorted to, and then filmed that to kind of create this really kind of sort of extended, extruded effect on 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 what you see. So already you're seeing parts of the human body stretched out of shape, um, and then also cut back together again in a kind of a random order often again in the opening credits you see an eye with an ear and a nose in the mm. same frame but in odd parts it's all sort of splintered and spread out strangely so it's just an indicator really of what to expect from the, from the rest of the film that follows I think but extremely stylized, um, classic um, Saul Bass really in the book we actually draw some parallels between that and the uh, credits for Psycho in so far as the, the font that was used for the credits, um, I, I'm not a font expert, that's probably Gabriel's territory, but um, it's a, 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 a sans-serif font, is used in both Psycho and Seconds.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but whereas if you think about how, or what happens to the the text in the open credits to Psycho, in fact, I think for the, for the word Psycho, it's kind of fractured along... Um, Parallel lines, um, horizontal lines, almost trying to indicate the state of mind of the the character, if you like. It's a little bit obvious to some extent, but it's quite effective. Almost a bit of an op art uh, effect Mm. it has. Um, Mm. With seconds, the text doesn't fracture, but the background does, which always makes me think about um, not so much the fracturing of the mind, but the fracturing of the body. That's what plays out in seconds. So, uh, yeah I think the, the opening credits are are really a, a fantastic setup and as you say me you've got the Jerry Goldsmith organ music which right from the get-go sets you up to think this is this is is this a horror movie it just sounds mm. so gothic and and scary and it kind of is actually but not necessarily in the way you necessarily expect
0: well I, I don't know about uh, because I you know I, I watched it like I said the first time I'll probably look again just to have a look at the at the font just because I I do you know, I'm interested in those things. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if he just used a very corporate font, something like Helvetica or something like Universe or something like Accidents Grotesque, which is very corporate and was used in corporate America. So yeah. appropriately corporate, corporate, isn't it, really? It's yeah, ideal yeah. for that. I'm Just thinking about Psycho again
2: also, the at the end of the second credit sequence, the last thing you see before it goes into the Grand Central Station scene, um, the camera... Enters into the mouth of mm. the head of a character who's, who's bound up in bandages, generally, generally, but you can kind of go in, going into the mouth, and you can see the mouth open and you can see the teeth, mm. and you can also see a bit grim, but you can see some like threads of saliva sort of linking the teeth, almost a little bit like tram lines in, in film. And whenever I see that bit, it always makes me think about the actual fabric of the film itself the surface mm-hmm. of the film. Because a lot of what we see in the film is about distortion. <clears throat> so the credits set up this idea of the actual film itself, not just the film experience, but the actual reels of film in the days when they had reels of film. Um, you become almost comfortably, uncomfortably aware of, of that
0: somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, I was, watching, I was watching Punch Drunk Love, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's film, which I revisit a lot. Which again was, was deemed you know, misunderstood, people didn't really quite connect with it. But I think it since has become more, not more of a classic than maybe some of his other films, but is, is increasing in popularity and, and is, is a lot more complicated and is a lot more nuanced than maybe some of his other films. But when I was watching that, there was a scene in that as well where the camera gets too close to Adam Sandler's character and he kind of knocks it with his head and it pushes back, but they kept it in because there was almost a sense of that accidental... um, It's the happy accident, you know, within the film. And I think... I, I noticed in this as well with Seconds, you know, you were talking about the splattering of, you know, the grape juice or the wine that was kind of going on the lens and the fractured nature and also what you were just saying about going into the mouth and seeing elements of saliva and making you think about how the element of film is used. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's what
2: he was striving to do quite a lot. He, he might have been overstretching himself a little bit with some of it. Um, that's not to say he wasn't a capable director, he certainly was. But I think um, that is, again, what's one of the things that the film is criticised for, that it's, it's a bit of an overstretch stylistically and thematically. I would beg to differ myself, but um, that, he definitely
0: coped that as a criticism. So going back to this idea that the film wasn't successful, on its release. And no doubt you discussed that in the book, but what what do you think of the reasons? I mean, we've spoken about f- filmically. I mean, are there other things like rock hudson's use in the film or the tone and the vibe of the film?
2: It was it was a film that kind of fell between two stools to some extent. It struggled to find a natural audience. <clears throat> so so science fiction horror movie fans would probably be Not particularly drawn to see a Rock Hudson film at that point in time. And conversely, Rock Hudson fans probably wouldn't touch a horror movie with a barge pole. And so it it, it struggled to find a a natural audience. Um, It played at Cannes uh, Film Festival the year of its release and uh, was booed. Um, Mm. So it got off to a pretty poor start and it would have played out, no doubt, in... The handful of, st- of of theatres that it did, and then that was it. You know, that's that's what can happen to a film sometimes. However good it might actually be, it just doesn't find the audience, and critical response was was very negative, too. So it just it just hadn't, didn't have anything going for it. It didn't have any supporters. Having said that, it did have Rock Hudson in its corner, who was at Cannes when it got the booze, and I believe was actually instrumental in what I was saying to the audience. Hold on a minute, folks. Just give it a chance, because mm-hmm. he he was a he remained a, a very very strong advocate of the film. Then and for for the rest of his life, actually, he he he, he championed it frequently at, at times when it just wasn't getting any attention whatsoever. So we do almost have to thank Hudson himself for for it eventually finding an audience. I would say.
1: I think it's a, a film that maybe on first is kind of disorienting or discombobulating the first time you see it, and as you mentioned before, it, it's definitely a film that requires essentially repeat viewings. I've only seen it twice, but you know, the, the second time I watched it, I realized that the first time he goes into the day room, the guy he asks, you know, "Oh, where, you know where am I? where do I, where do I go?" It, unbeknownst to him is Charlie. Yes. um, and that's that's something that you know, might escape viewers on first viewing. Um, so what something I wanted to ask you was, because I'm sure you've seen the, the film many, many times, is there is there any kind of little like grace note, little detail that maybe escaped you perhaps for many viewings that you didn't catch until you've seen the movie for you know, the tenth time? It's um, <laughs> a good question. Um
2: I suppose in terms of just researching the book, um, there were one or two things that cropped up that I was unaware of um when I before I was writing the book. Uh so you wouldn't have picked it up from watching the movie. But um but they're really interesting and I I can I can let you know about this. so the, so the, the first one is and we haven't really talked about the politics of the film. Frankenheim was very much kind of centre left politically. Uh that kind of definitely comes through mentoring candidate kind of in the Seven Days in May. To a lesser extent, it comes through in seconds, but I think it's definitely there, and it definitely we know that this is his political beliefs were sort of centre left. Um, the I will come onto the anecdotes in a second, but just to lead into that, the, the the Malibu Beach House that features in the film was actually John Frankenheimer's own home, so that's that was oh, wow. uh, that was the setting of it. So now that was nineteen sixty six when the film was was made and released. A couple of years later, sixty eight. Um, Frankenheim was at his Malibu house. He he threw a kind of a dinner party for some invited guests. Um, Now, one of those guests was uh, Bobby Kennedy. And this was the day before Kennedy was driven by John Frankenheimer to the Ambassador Hotel, and we know what happened at the Ambassador Hotel. Um, At that same dinner party, there were other guests... Two of whom were Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. Now, thinking about the timing of this, it wasn't that much later, not too far from that beach house, that uh, Sharon Tate and others were murdered. So it's, uh, you know.
0: Can we surmise then that Frankenheimer is behind some of the most gruesome crimes in American history?
2: (laughs) No, I wouldn't. It just the point is, it's he was clearly, uh, uh, you know, some possibly by accident something of a central figure in one of the kind of key historical moments of that decade. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly, after Kennedy's assassination, um, Frankenheimer's film output did actually decline quite a bit. I believe that he took to alcohol significantly in his career, did did uh, struggle a little bit after that. He, he, he was clearly extremely affected by, by, by that uh, incident. Mm. The other thing I was going to mention to you, so that's, that's that's one thing, the other thing is, and we kick off the book by by... Um, going uh, talking about this is uh, Brian Wilson, the leader of the Beach Boys. So in 1966, he'd recently released Pet Sounds, one of the greatest albums ever recorded, according to many. Uh, and then he was in the middle of recording the follow-up album, Smile. And he went to see the screening of Seconds. And when he came in, that coincided. I don't think. I think he missed the beginning of it. Uh, when he went in to see the film, that coincided with the the nurse in the company headquarters saying to um, the uh, the, ma- the main character, "Hello, Mister Wilson. Will you come this way, please?" Something like that. Can't remember the exact dialogue. He thought it in his paranoid state. He thought it was the film was basically about him. And, he, and when he related this back to his friends when he got home, he said it even had a beach in it and everything. It was all about me, about my life, about being. You know, reborn, and it's all about me. What's going on? So there's some kind of universal thing, something at play that that was all around his own experience. Uh He didn't actually really Smile uh, for many, many years after that in some kind of convoluted form. Yeah, it's it's one way or another. Seconds has played an interesting role in uh, um, cultural history, but a lot of people don't, aren't
1: even aware of it. Mm. That's really fascinating.
0: I didn't know any of that. I think these insights that you get, Jez, and I guess when you're researching a project and you're going in depth, the book itself is published by, is it Liverpool University and Auteur? It's like a collaboration? That's right, yes. Yeah. So I guess there's an academic rigor to it, although I'm assuming that, you know, it needs to be accessible and maybe less esoteric in terms of its academic language. I mean, did you do interviews for the book? Was, was there anyone that you were able to access now 60 years on? I mean, were there any... Yeah. There
2: was, there was. Not actually me, it was Emma, actually managed to interview Salome Jens, who's in the film. So she's into mm. her 80s now, but she's still going strong. And so she gave a really, really interesting interview. I and mean, we did feature um, sections of that in the, in the book. So that was a really nice thing to be able to do, certainly.
0: Yeah. Mm. So did she have any... Because she's one of only probably two female characters within the entire film, because we, we talk we talk about the predominance of, of maleness and and the male perspective in, in this type of film, and I guess that comes up quite a lot in Frankenheimer's films. Although Angela Lansbury is a key figure, isn't she, in Manchurian Candidate, you know, her character is the mother. But was there anything that came out of that interview f- with Salome and, and her you know that that were interesting aspects about the filming and her role in the film and her perception of it. Or uh,
2: I think it was it was more just anecdotal stuff about her experience actually working with Hudson and Frankenheimer, rather than anything deeper than that. Uh, mm. uh, pro- probably. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned there's another cat. She's actually Hamilton's wife, which we see. Yeah, in, yeah. She's in the beginning, and then when when he, the Rock Hudson version goes back to to the family home, he, he meets her again there. Um, and found, I cannot remember the actress's name, but she was in the TV uh, version of Peyton Place. Mm-hmm. So viewers in the states certainly seeing that actress in a role like that would automatically be thinking back to, again, that kind of post-war nuclear family, you know, wife, stay-at-home wife, um, which actually is what she is in 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 the character in, in the film. So that kind of harks back to that kind of past, that recent past, in a way. Mm-hmm. So those two female characters definitely are again. There's another case of duality there, isn't there? They, they, mm. They're playing two quite quite different roles. The Nora character is definitely we know because she's a, a company employee. There's another spoiler there for you. Mm-hmm. Um, she serves very much to provide um, the Rock Hudson character with uh, a lure, if you like, in, into the aspects of a new life. Without that, he might have struggled. So she was almost she was put in by the company. Mm to enhance that experience. Um, mm. But she very much kind of projects that's much more kind of modern free free love um, kind of uh, femininity uh, that we're seeing coming through in the, in the 60s.
0: Well, you can argue that, that she's the one that pushes him towards, yes, being liberated, but then talking too much, you know, loosening his lips. Where he starts to drink because after that scene of them on the beach, nice and tender, the next scene is them at the party and he's drinking too much.
2: Which I think actually, for me, illustrates how just how lacking in control the company is of its yep. processes offering this service. And yet, you kind of think, well, there's probably an extremely high failure rate amongst the clients. You know, mm-hmm. how many so, how many of the guys that you see in the day room have, mm-hmm. have, have you know, their, their experience hasn't worked out and they've they wound up back. Back in the day we room waiting for another chance if they ever get it, how long mm. will they be there for so mm. so yes, it's almost as though um, by trying to make it work by injecting Nora into his experience, it's quite it's, it's pretty random. I mean there's no guarantees that it is all going to work out from a mm. company perspective, and of course obviously it doesn't.
0: Mm.
1: I love uh this this notion that the the company also lacks control and i think that's something i was thinking about when i was watching it for the second time that you could look at the rock hudson character and kind of his his naive idea that he can go back and redo it again and and again and again and again until you get it right um and but i think the company also has that that kind of mindset that that folly of you know the the old man character of you know, we're, you know, you're you're dying so that we can perfect this process. You know, and but the process will never be perfected. So I think, I don't know. You could you could argue that the old man, is sort of like the Rock Hudson character because he he keeps thinking that if he keeps the more he does it, you know, maybe one day they'll get the process right, but it'll it'll never get right. Yeah, like
2: that. He in, fact, in that
1: scene at the end. Um, where we sit where we see the old man for the final time he
2: talks about learning from their mistakes um, and they they kind of do but they don't waste anything either so so you know the, everything is recycled <laughs> quite literally um, and they continue to try to learn from their mistakes but he's he does he does say that you know so uh, yeah but is that not in some respects a, a kind of a, a microcosm of the capitalist system that, you know, we're all consumers and we need to keep consuming um, for, for the entire system to keep carrying on in some way.
0: I think it was also quite ahead of its, well, less, I guess, ahead of its time, but it's a very pertinent film to now because of that whole idea of the trying to redo. And we talk about the, the sense of technology, that, that the whole idea is that technology gives people this impression of the, the ability to erase and reconstruct. And I think that was another, uh, the theme that that resonated with me, is this idea that we only have one life to live. And it's the embracing of whatever it is that you have and you know, trying to kind of live the dreams. Because, because the old man, again, mentions dreams quite a few times. A lot, yeah. But right at the end of the film, and I don't necessarily think this is the end spoiler, but the last shot of the film is of him, you think it's him. Well, I think it's him. Wow! You know, walking down the beach, and he's got a child on his shoulder, and it, it, it you know, it, then it starts to get distorted again. So, as in the in the title sequences where you've got the distortion of the film, at the end it distorts again. Now, I don't know if that was, I mean, what what can you say about that? Who was that? Or Who do you think it was? And it's,
2: it's one of those things that is completely open to conjecture. You can you can make of it what you want to. What I tend to think is that when we see the ultimate fate of the body that was once Arthur Hamilton, who became Tony Wilson, played by Rock Hudson. Mm. The last time we see him in the day room talking to the person who was Charlie Evans, but isn't isn't actually called Charlie Evans when he's in, in the day room. Like he's called Mister Carlson. Mister mm. Carlson. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I sometimes tend to think that the the cadaver that that had been Rock Hudson. Uh, ...was used to take the place of um, the person who, who was Charlie Evans... ...and in fact what we see on the beach with the child... ...is the person who was once Charlie Evans. Oh. <laughs> but oh, that's, that's, getting... that's com- that could be completely wrong. But that's the beauty of it, isn't it? We can, we can interpret it. It could be, could be completely unrelated. I think actually originally what, it, the, what that wasn't necessarily the intention... ...that wasn't mm. one of the actors from the film... Uh, it's so distant you can't
0: see who it is. One of the the darkest scenes for me or the darkest concepts or ideas is that day room because in the context of the film it it is the place and I didn't know this at the beginning when you first see the day room and again I've seen it once so when I go back and with that hindsight then you can start to focus on other things but when you see that day room and you realise that Charlie has been there for over a year because the transformation of Arthur Hamilton to Tom Wilson, Rock Hudson's character, and the life that he's been living is a year, right? Or it's roundabout, roughly Probably, a year. Probably, yeah, yeah. Now, the phone calls were coming from that same room. Now, that room is the place, correct me if I'm wrong, and I understand this right, but that room is where anyone that this, this double, the this second life hasn't quite gelled, And they've rebelled in some way or they've decided, oh, I want to try again. I want to go for the next time. They're put into that room to wait until there's another body or another cadaver or another another willing participant that has then suggested someone else to become, you know, a seconder or a second. But they have to wait in that room until the opportunity arises again. And that's why the people that come in there and give them pills and tablets and everything, it seems like a hospital, although it's a a day room and it looks like an office because they're sitting there playing cards, never speak to each other. Nope. They're like in their own little space. But that is the waiting room, isn't it? It is. For them to move to the next stage. But I, I read it as purgatory. It
2: absolutely, it, Absolutely, it. I mean, it, that's actually back to when you see Rock Hudson return to, to the complete offices, he does end up back in, there, back in that room. Now, if he'd, as they were trying to press him to do, if he could have recommended somebody else in the outside world who could Mm. become a client of the company, um, that might have been then his start to pretend to get out of the day room. But because he couldn't Mm. come up with a name, and there are a couple of scenes where you see him, and I'm like, oh, I can't think of anybody. I really can't think of anybody. Now, if only he'd come up with somebody, he might have got out of there in some other form, but he didn't. And so he became a cadaver instead.
0: So do you think Charlie, when he came out of that room, and this was like a year and a bit later, and he's got the tear rolling down his eye because there's, there's almost like a sense of a realization. I mean, he starts crying when he's talking to Rock Hudson's character. Yep. What do you think that, wh- what was the tear about? Is that kind of pain or is this just agony that he's been in there for such a long time and now he's got his friend in there as well? No, I think it's a tear of
2: relief because he's probably twigged that um, his his old friend is going to provide the dead body that will enable him to get out of the day room so it's a tear of relief right finally okay now having been waiting in that day room he's mm. gonna get another chance
1: mm. I had a question about the going back to that scene as as well is do you think that his refusal, because I'm not sure if, if I have an answer to this myself, do you think his refusal to provide another client or to give a name of another client, do you think that's because he realizes that, you know, this is a bad situation and he doesn't want to suck someone else into this? Or do you think it's it's supposed to show that he's this very kind of lonely, friendless person Person and that he truly doesn't know anybody that he could recommend it could be either
2: (laughs) I don't I, I, I wouldn't like to say it could be either of those potential
0: scenarios I'm wondering if the third option though is about if this is a nod to McCarthyism because wasn't the main actor that played Arthur Hamilton at the beginning what was the actor's name uh, John sure. Randolph. John Randolph. Yeah. Wasn't he blacklisted? He was. He was, there he was several, blacklisted for 15 years. There were several blacklisted 15. actors in the film.
2: Will Gear, who plays The Old Man, was. Um, Jeff Corey, mm. who was one of the other company uh, employees. He he was another one. Uh, and I think there were some behind the scenes um, uh, technicians, etc., who were similarly blacklisted. So this is, again, Frankenheimer employing people who'd had that experience. So absolutely, mm. blacklisting run, runs through this film.
0: And another, another theme that I, I wanted to just pick out um, and maybe just talk about the significance of Rock Hudson's character as Tom Wilson, as an artist. Now, art plays, I think I noticed it quite a lot, um, art plays quite a significant part in the film. And you can see it in lots of different places. You know, in his studio when he is that, you know Tom Wilson character, and he ends up in his studio, and you can see all the paintings all around. But they're also dotted throughout the dif- throughout the film in different locations, whether it's in the corporation's office or whether it's in his house. And when he goes back to visit his widow, there's a painting be- behind him. There's lots of art around. And can you maybe just say a little bit about the symbolism or what you think? Sure. Um, well, it, uh, as a
2: side note, of course, the, the film that I mentioned at the beginning was that preceded seconds was the train which is all about the movement of of old masters um out of uh into well, to a sort of safe territory away from um the nazis in, in europe during the second world war so art uh, definitely is something that preoccupied frankenheimer but um so in the company office where um after Hamilton has his first meeting with uh, represented from the company, the the walls of the office are lined with various paintings. So you can very clearly see there's a mother and child painting by Picasso. Uh, but obviously it's a fake. So if it's right off the bat, the artwork on the walls is emblematic of the forging, if you like, um, that the company deals in. There's another painting in the office. And you can't quite see clearly that it definitely is this painting. But from a distance, it looks quite like it. So there's a, a famous Goya painting, um, and I can't remember the title. Some somebody eating his devouring his son. I Can't remember the the, the name, of the rest of the, the title of the painting. But it's quite a famous painting showing a like a godlike character literally eating a human. Part of part of the body has been already been been consumed. So again, you have a kind of a father son uh, relationship setting setting up there with that as a kind of a visual signifier of that. Another famous print that you see in the film is earlier on when you see Hamilton in his study having that phone call. It's quite dark, but you can see to the right of the desk that he sat there's a, a print of um, the music lesson of the Mir painting. And the room is very much uh, uh, reflected in the composition of that painting. So there's a figure sitting. Um, there you can see the the exposed beams of the ceiling, both in the room and in the painting. There's even a jug in the painting, which is mirrored by the trophy on the mantelpiece in the room, which we've talked about that trophy mm. before. So, that again, that's thinking about the white rabbit and Alice and, and the rabbit hole. That's like a sort of a continuum uh, at the outset of the film through which the character descends. and So the painting almost acts as a... As a conduit to that to that continuum, mm. um, yeah. But so the, and also that Hamilton himself is a. It's said on a couple of occasions that he's a, a an amateur watercolour painter. We never actually mm. see, as far as I can tell, anyway. We never actually see any of his work hanging on walls or anything. And in fact, when he goes, he returns to the family home in his Rock Hudson form. We learn, I think, that the paintings have been stashed away in the garage. So his his wife or widow, who um, mm. raised. His, his, his artwork from the family home, which is quite mm. interesting as well.
0: Yeah, I, I just find it fascinating that sometimes the suggestion of, of things through art, you know, when you're a, when you're a filmmaker and it's the, it's the things that you put around you that for people that are looking at film and trying to understand how it works, to be able to pick out specific things and say everything is there, you know, the whole concept of the mise-en-scene, you know, you can read all these different elements that give you some clues to identity, or what's going on in in the psychology, or because it's not like a book, you don't have, you know, three hundred and fifty pages to work. You've got a very you know, short script effectively that all this other stuff needs to to needs to do some work. Sure, it's not an
2: uncommon technique.
0: I mean, filmmakers do tend to
2: use this quite quite frequently, but I always tend to think it's used best when it's quite fleeting and almost slightly subliminal. You might get mm. a quick pan shot across the room where you see you know an image there very briefly, and you can barely even take it in. But maybe on some similar level, something is being communicated to you about what this film is kind of about,
1: um, just to enhance that experience. It seems especially crucial in this film, too, because for, especially in the opening act, it's so light on dialogue. There's, um, I mean, you know, the the opening sequence, there's no speaking, and then when he's in the car with his, his wife coming home from work... They're giving that like really depressing back and forth. Like, how was your day? Oh, it was okay. How was your day? But the the dialogue is very minimal for much of the film. It mm. is, and, and I think you mentioned the silence as well. There are
2: definitely scenes in in the film where um, the the quietness is is palpable and actually plays a kind of a role. Really mm. honest. Um, and you're right about the company headquarters. It's like the carpet must be incredibly thick in that hallway mm-hmm. when he's walking out
0: because you can't hear a, a footstep at all. Yeah. So when you think about comparable films or films that you know, the impact or the influence that this film has had on films that have come later, I mean, there's, there have been lots of films, haven't there, about identity. Pa- the Passenger, I think, is, is a you know, classic example of a film that you feel is in the same vein. Eyes Without a Face probably is similar. Uh, Pedro Almodovar's um, The Skin I Live In. And I, and I, I, and I definitely think that another, another Spanish film called Abre Los Ojos, which was remade by uh, Cameron Crowe as Vanilla Sky, um, again is another one of these films that plays with the notion of identity or being dissatisfied with your life and thinking, okay, there's there's a better life out there for me.
2: I was going to say Face Off, the John Woo film, which is a bit more lowbrow. Yeah, but uh, kind of, um, there was another film made in the ooh, sort two of thousands called Selfless, which I haven't actually seen, but I I don't think it got terribly great reviews, and I, so I've avoided that one. But I, mm. I I think it does draw upon. So another one actually we refer to in in the book is the David Fincher film The Game, very very much has echoes. Of, um, Michael Douglas the, the story yeah that's right yeah very mm. very much influenced by seconds well again this is in the intro to the book that, that it almost I couldn't say it was the first of its kind to do it but it was a very early example of the depiction of a, a corporate um, entity that operates under the radar uh, you know not seen by, but, but is actually pulling pulling the strings and that mm. rapidly became through the 70s and 80s and frankly still to this day um, a, a very common science fiction trope. You look at, you think about Wayland Utani in the Alien films, Recall, the Total Recall. Um, um, there's probably oh, what's the David David Cronenberg film, um, Videodrome, the company in that. So yeah. it became a kind of a very common uh, idea. And Seconds it was one of the earliest films to really portray uh, a, a company, a, a corporation, organisation in, in such a. Uh, a dark and shadowy way.
1: Another conspiracy thriller too would be Parallax View. Yeah. The mm. Parallax Company that's you know uh, trying to recruit and tr- and train under the radar these you know super assassins basically. But yeah, mm.
2: yeah. I mean, I, I I really like Parallax View, and I, I think it could almost have been made by Frankenheimer. Really, uh, it's got yeah. a lot of qualities that that uh, you can see connections there. So, uh, that there's that might be a good pairing I suppose
1: there's just a string through the 60s and 70s of these incredible paranoia thrillers there's just some there's so many of them yeah and three days of the Congo uh, I mean all the yeah. presidents
2: all the president's men I suppose to some extent as well yeah it, it, it set that off, but of course you know we're talking about a film that's made seven eight ten years before the these mm-hmm. these films that we're talking about so uh,
0: yeah really important one we'll, but it's found its cult audience, hasn't it, seconds? It's it's getting reappraised all the time. I mean, Criterion released it fairly recently. Yeah. Um, and it's it's being spoken about. I mean, it's being lauded now, which, it, again, is another example of these films that on their first release, they just don't hit. You know, we, we Tom and I were talking about Night of the Hunter. And again, that was a film that just did not connect with the audience at that particular time. And you're thinking that's the beauty isn't it about cinema is that generations come we reconsider them we look at the context of what's happening we look at the filmic techniques and then you get a whole new audience you get a whole new respect, respect for these films
2: yeah classic case of it it found its audience through, through home based media really um, like, like quite a few others um, that's, that's how it happened and, that, and then the internet of course mm. so yeah it's found <laughs> its audience basically
1: out of, out of curiosity Jez, do you think of, of films that don't find their audience immediately and are kind of shrugged off upon initial release do you can you think of any sort of contemporary films that you think maybe in like 40 years will be will be the next seconds you know
2: yes I, well this might be kind of a maybe a bit of a surprise but I honestly believe that the mist will find its audience.
1: I love that movie,
2: yes. Yeah, mm. I, I think it was did not get great critical reviews at the time. It um, was somewhat overlooked. I think a lot of audiences were comparing it to Darabont's previous films and thinking, oh, it's not as good as that. But I honestly think uh, that will be reappraised. And I think probably quite soon, actually. And I think maybe it already is happening, in fact.
0: I think it is happening. But again, that's a, that's a prime example of another film that has a very dark ending. Yeah, and and pl- you know plays against I guess and, and the whole notion of happy endings and Hollywood being the happy ending factory. I mean, we're getting far more used to the idea of films having a little bit of a dark undertone, but it was it was one of those films that I just don't think a lot of people connected with, and maybe it is. It's it's this idea that people by the end of a film. They want to come out maybe on a little bit more of a high, and these films don't do it. I mean, Seconds brings you out. If anything, you know, the last f- three or four minutes of that film uh, just shook me to my core. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, they're excruciating, really. Yeah. Um, so, how can people get hold of your book?
2: Uh, it's available through all good online book retailers. So I won't name any in particular. The obvious one beginning with A. Probably the publisher would really love it if you actually bought it through, direct through their website, the Liverpool University Press website. So if I had to pick one source out, it would be the Liverpool University Press website.
0: Brilliant. Great. Now, we did say, Jez, we we mentioned about the idea of perhaps doing a competition. Now, I think we can do that on Instagram. We can do that in one way, but I thought maybe it could also be quite nice to include it in the podcast, So would you be able to ask a question that then people could write in or email us with an answer for a chance to win a copy of the book, a signed copy of the book, no less? Yes. Okay, so
2: um, the question I would be, and I I did mention this during the podcast, so if you want the answer, you'd have to play the whole thing again back to get it. Um, But what I would like to know is, what was the address written on the scrap of paper that was put into Arthur Hamilton's hand right at the beginning of the film?
0: brilliant brilliant question
2: there you have it that's a good one yeah that'd
1: be a good uh, bar trivia question <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. i don't so, know what i don't know what trivia night at a bar would be would do a frankenheimer <laughs> <trip night, laughs> <but that>? maybe <laughs> wow but yeah i mean a fantastic film and uh, jez your insight has been really fascinating and i definitely want
0: to get a hold of a copy of the book now so thank you great just answer answer the question tom just send, send in an email. <laughs> yeah, I will. I'm going to go and listen to the episode. <laughs>